We're continuing reading from Romans 9 on through Romans 10. We're beginning at verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in teaching that law, in reaching the law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if they were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have, found by the, I have been found by those who didn't seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. 
Amen. If you keep the uh, passage there before you, you find that really helpful. I have to apologize. The past couple of weeks actually have been much longer than I planned to. It's, it's difficult to explain some of this stuff uh, briefly. Um, last time we saw that God elects people to salvation. That is the only way that anyone can be saved is if God does that. Because we don't, we won't, we can't choose him otherwise. He chooses us. The good news about that is that God's will is free where our will isn't. And so we saw salvation from God's perspective, from an aerial sort of perspective, from a heavenly sort of realm. But there's another side, and that's this week's uh, passage. Now we see salvation from a human perspective, from a sort of ground perspective, from the earth. And what we find is it's all about faith. So I want to show you three things this morning just in that uh, section. Firstly, faith makes us right. That faith calls for help. And that faith comes by hearing. I wonder if you've ever sort of experienced this thing. There are some masterpieces um, in art and life that when you look at them, you just find yourself discouraged. Because the predominant feeling is, I can never amount to that. I will, I will never be able to paint like that. I will never be able to play that instrument like that. This is uh, just one section of the Sistine Chapel painted by Michelangelo, the creation of Adam. There's some masterpieces that I think when you look at it, and in some ways the photograph doesn't do justice, I, I doubt to the feeling of standing there and, and seeing it. There are some things that just leave you with a sense that I'm never going to be able to quite be able to do this, whether it's in music, in art, in literature, in film. And here's the point about that. The law should leave you realizing that you can't meet it and that you need help, not I can do this. Faith makes us right. What should we say then, Paul says? And he's closing off the section of the argument from chapter 9. And now giving his summary of of that section as well. He's been dealing with a a couple of different threads here. Firstly is about the inclusion of Gentiles. That's all non-Jewish people, ethnically speaking. And also the rebellion of Israel, who are God's people. And rather than go over that too much, maybe you could just listen back to previous ones if you missed it. But now he's tying those two things together. And here's his diagnosis. Two contrasting statements here in verses 30 to 32. Firstly here, verse 30. Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained that. That is, a righteousness that's by faith. And here's the contrasting statement. Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that's by faith. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, didn't succeed in reaching that. And he gives his summary as to why that is. Because they didn't pursue it by faith. Two different peoples, two different approaches, two different outcomes, two different reasonings. Two different peoples, Gentiles, Israel. Those who haven't grown up with all the background and knowledge and heritage, those who have. Two different 
approaches, one who didn't pursue righteousness particularly, and one who pursued it very intently, very zealously, one who finds that they attain it, one who finds that they don't, one who found a righteousness by faith, one who weren't pursuing righteousness by faith. And the imagery there is of a race. That's the sort of language in the original Greek there is about pursuing, it's about running and attaining, reaching the goal, reaching the moment at which you cross the line and grab hold of the thing that you set out for. That some have set out on this race and yet have not made it to the end and actually found the finishing goal, the very thing that they were after. And some weren't even in the race, they didn't think. And yet somehow, they've grabbed hold of it. One setting out by faith alone. One setting out in the strength of their own abilities. Two different groups Jews seeking to achieve righteousness, that is a right standing before God that leads to favor through performance, and they failed. Gentiles haven't particularly sought righteousness, but by faith, they've trusted in the work of Christ and received his righteousness. This has been one of the themes of the letter so far. Let me just give you just one reference, one point at which Paul says is chapter 3 verses 20 and 21, by works of the law no human being will be justified in his, that's God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through seeing the law all you really see, if you're really seeing, is where you don't measure up. You see all the places in which you haven't done it, if you really see. But now The righteousness of God has been manifested, that's made clear, made graspable, made understandable, apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And the problem with this is, this is easier to accept if you don't really have much going on for you. Who is it that's happy with the game ending early? It's the loser, not the winner. You perhaps will have seen the uh, video clip of the boy losing Monopoly and chucking the board everywhere and and having a a massive sort of meltdown. And I won't ask you whether that's sort of all too common in, in your own home. But the person who is upset with the ending of the game early is not the person who's been losing. It's the person who feels they're actually doing very, very well. There's one group here who feel they're doing very, very well. And the idea that righteousness could just be gifted apart from what you do is quite offensive because I've done a lot of very good things. I've lived a very respectable life, so I think. How have Israel missed this? Well, Paul gives his verdict here, verse 33. I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He quotes from the Old Testament prophets there. The stumbling block is Jesus himself. We know this from other New Testament writers. Peter uh, quotes the same passage in in more depth and detail and makes Jesus the stone of stumbling. 1 Peter 2 verse 5. Be a holy priesthood. uh, He's making you to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A few verses later, verse 8. They stumble because they disobey God the word. They struggle to believe Christ because they can't believe that they are not capable, that only he is. Two groups, Jews and Gentiles, religious, irreligious, 
Two righteousnesses. One a self-righteousness. One an alien righteousness that's given from somebody else. And two results. One saves. One condemns. And so here's Paul's response. And his response answers this question. Does God electing to salvation, the thing he's talked about in chapter 9, we won't go over it again now because we've already done that, but does that remove a sort of missional impulse, a missional sort of motivation and output? Does it actually mean that you just sort of sit on your hands uh, and don't do anything because you think, well, it's only God who does it, so there's no need for my input at all? Well, his answer is not at all. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. I mean, he also actions that, by the way, by preaching, by planting churches across cities as far as he can in the known world at the time. My heart's desire, my prayer is that they might be saved, but also his life's work is that people might be saved. It doesn't at all limit his output and impulse. The fact that God works sovereignly to save some gives the confidence to go out And to share the message that it's not all on me. It's not all on them. Otherwise, there's this reality. I don't know whether you've ever had those dreams where, you know, you feel as though you're sort of in a fight and you go to throw a punch, but it's like you're in slow motion and you do no damage. And you're like, oh, no. Or you're running away, but it feels like you're underwater or you're in mud and you just, you can't move. And the other person's just gaining on you and gaining on you. This is what it feels like. If God isn't sovereign in saving people, then this is what the work of evangelism is like, surely, if you're thinking. Surely you're thinking, how on earth is this possibly going to bear any fruit? If this depends on me, on my eloquence, my charisma and ability to get this across, God help us. If, if this is just on the person's ability to understand this and some of this stuff that is so difficult to grasp and accept, what hope have we got? that this will ever have any success. The fact that God sovereignly works gives us the confidence that we're not punching underwater, we're not running underwater. One of the ways this is expressed even just in the events that occur in the New Testament is Acts chapter 13, verse 48. As many as were appointed to eternal life after Paul has preached boldly, believed. As many as were appointed. Paul doesn't know who they are. He doesn't know how many they are. All he knows is it's his job to preach and God appoints some to respond. It gives you the confidence that those that God is prompting will respond in spite, despite your limited words. But let's look further at this response of Paul's because here he lays out the problem. Verse 2. They have a zeal, this is Jews, they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. There is a zealousness, an enthusiasm, a passion, a a, a conviction to their religion that's commendable in a way. It's in many ways inspiring the level and the depths that they go to, intending to seek and to find God. They have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. What does he mean by this? I think what he means is the problem isn't a lack of information. It's about perception. It's how do I make sense of the information that I do have and what do I do with it? There's no lack of information for Israel. They have the wealth of the Old Testament scriptures. No lack of information, but it's how do they perceive it? It's like the stock market. 
uh, unless you want to sort of rare people who understand what's going on with that, you can have all the information at the tips of your fingers, on your iPad, on your iPhone. You can have all of that. But if you don't understand how it works, it really doesn't matter. It's just a collection of numbers and graphs. It makes no sense. You don't just need the information. You need to know what to do with it. You need to know how to make sense of it, how to perceive it. They've had the law, the prophets, but not been able to make sense of it at all. Now, in case you think that this is just Paul saying it, here is Jesus, John chapter 5. Here he is in argument with Pharisees again. And here's just one of many instances when he does this. He says to them, The Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. Take that in for a moment. He's saying that to very zealous, very religious, very learned religious leaders of Israel. You have never heard his voice. Have they not read the Torah? Of course they have. Of course they have. From their youth. So what is he saying? You have had all the information. You have not understood it. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent, Jesus. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And it only gets worse, in case you are wondering. They have all the information. They have not perceived. They have not understood and made sense of it. That's their problem. But then what knowledge? Because Paul gets specific. What knowledge is it that they don't have that they're struggling for? Being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they were seeking to establish their own and didn't submit to God's righteousness. You see those three elements there, don't you? Ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, not submitting to God's righteousness. And here's Paul's central idea, verse 4. For because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everybody who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And his point is not that the law comes to an end. It's not that it has no value. It's not that it's abolished. He says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what's his point? Well, the word there in the original language is teleos. It's goal. The point of the law is righteousness for everyone who believes. The Old Testament shows we ought to keep the law. We haven't kept the law. We don't keep the law. We won't keep the law. We can't keep the law. We need somebody who will. We need Jesus. And so faith makes us right. As we trust in Jesus' perfect keeping of the law and gifting of his own righteousness to us. Faith makes us right. But secondly, faith calls for help. 
Look at verses 5 to 13 there. Paul continues this sort of contrast between those two groups, two righteousnesses, two ends. Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law. The person who does the commandments shall live by them. See, there's a way of reading the Old Testament law where righteousness is sought by meeting commandments through your performance. And he continues here. But the righteousness based on faith... He's contrasting these two righteousnesses now. A righteousness is based on the law, now a righteousness based on faith. The righteousness based on faith says, and he's quoting from Old Testaments here again, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 30. The righteousness based on faith doesn't rely on my ability to perform in order to find God's favour. And, on the other hand, it also does not reduce righteousness to a box-ticking exercise and recognises righteousness is actually about my heart. Robert Burns has a couple of great quotes about this. He says, firstly here, the heart is always the part that makes us right or wrong. And that's the reality of the Old Testament law. It's the reality even of that section of Deuteronomy 30, that it's not just about what you do. It is about where your heart is and why you do it. So that in another great quote from Robbie Burns, he says, Why has a religious turn of mind always a tendency to narrow and harden the heart. There's the problem. That it's actually really about the heart that makes us right or wrong, and yet there is this reality, this deep human reality, that this religious bent of trying to leverage God's favor through your performance that hardens your heart, that narrows it, that turns the blessings of God into things you feel you're owed God was more interested in their heart than perfection. That's why, actually, interesting, you, you, you'll read, even in Deuteronomy 30, it's worth reading those couple of verses, that there is a sort of failsafe built in for when they don't keep it. Because the expectation is that they will not keep it perfectly. Verses 9 and 10. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, it expects that there'll be moments in which you'll not, and you will have to return to him. And when you do, he'll prosper you, he'll bless you. His favour will be upon you. Earlier in verse 2, return to the Lord your God, you and your children. There's an expectation that they won't keep it all. They won't keep it all the time. And so there's something built in for them even to help them. But what he's more interested in was their heart. So Paul continues, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That's all to say, as it says in Deuteronomy 30, I'm not giving you a difficult command, God tells them. I'm giving you something difficult that's far off, that's hard for you to understand. I don't know what it is you're after. It's clear. There's clarity for them. It's not difficult. Why? 
Paul continues here, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's not really a difficult action, and yet we know that we find it very hard perhaps to come to the place of calling for help. So he clarifies this for us. Verse 10 here. With the heart, one believes and is justified. I don't have too much more to say about it than this, but it's interesting to note, I think, isn't it, that it's not the head. With the heart, one believes and is justified. Beliefs are rooted in your heart. In what you love in what you fear, in what you think you can't live without, in what motivates you, in what you value. With the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Belief calls for an action, actually calling for help. Again, important maybe just to quickly pause and say these, confession, and belief aren't separate events. For Paul, these two are deeply connected. With the heart you believe and are justified, with the mouth you confess and are saved. Everyone, that is, I, Jew and Gentile, who believes in him will not be put to shame. He's quoting from Isaiah 28 again. And he's used that previously in a negative sense, but here he's using it positively. The belief qualifies you for saving. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. It's the same way of salvation, both for Jew and for Gentile. He doesn't and he didn't save Jews through the law, but then Gentiles by faith. He saves all by faith. For everyone, again, i.e. Jew and Gentile, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's quoting from Joel chapter 2. It's an inclusively exclusive offer. Do you see that? It's inclusive. It's to everybody. Everybody who calls on the name of Jesus should be saved. But it's exclusive in that the only means of finding that salvation is calling to Jesus. See, salvation culminates in and is based upon calling on Jesus for help. It means realizing I'm helpless without him and submitting to him. It's faith that makes us right. The law should lead us to a place of realizing how much I cannot possibly keep that, which should help me to get to the next place of saying, I need to call on Jesus for help. I need him to save me. Faith calls for help. But then lastly, faith comes by hearing. Uh, you might not be much into sport, but actually um, use this illustration more for the fact of just the story of sort of human life. Um, this is Claudia Ranieri. Uh, in 2016, Leicester City, a 5,000 to 1 outsiders who had the previous season narrowly avoided relegation. So they've gone from last place pretty much 
to first in a year, managed to win the Premier League. And so everybody, whether you're interested in football or sport or not, was interested to hear from Claudio Ranieri. How did he manage to take a group who were not really considered to be that talented, really overachievers, and how had they got such good performances out of them? And one of the funny and frequent stories uh, was about one of his motivational techniques, as he confirmed. He said, when something was wrong, I would say, and here he is pretending to hold a little bell, dilly ding, dilly dong, wake up. And all the players knew this story. In fact, actually, one Christmas, he bought them all a bell with that uh, inscribed on it. The gospel cries out to us to wake up. Faith comes by hearing. Dilly ding, dilly dong. Wake up. And so Paul here addresses a few questions, doesn't he? How will they? We get a few of those questions in verses 14 to 15. Four connected and cumulative problems that he answers. Firstly, how can they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? Put it another way, that people need to believe to be saved. Well, people then need to hear to believe. To hear, people need a preacher to tell them. To have a preacher to tell them, someone needs to send them. See, Paul isn't happy for the status quo to remain. He wants to change the situation. And so he answers his own longing. He said in verse 1 that he longs, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them as they might be saved. He doesn't just sit there with that longing and that prayer. Here's his answer to it. That someone needs to go and needs to share this with them. For someone to go, they need to be sent. They need to be called and commissioned and given the resources to do it. You see that pattern there of call, heard, hear, preach. Because the gospel is by nature a message to be heard, news to be shared, a call to a response. He keeps saying they, though, in these few verses. So just before we progress, let's ask who is they? And Paul is thinking firstly, really, here of, of Israel, but also everybody else too. And just as we come to these verses, you might think in your own sort of heart, in your own minds, I just in these moments, how about you? Who is in your mind as we think about these truths here? They who need to hear. Who are you anxious for this morning? How are they to hear without someone preaching? Preaching has God-given power. The gospel coming through a human agent. And Paul is biased in presenting this, of course, because Paul has written this letter in part because he plans to go to Spain on a missionary venture after getting to spend some time with the Romans. As far as Paul knows at the time, Spain is the edge of the known world. And so Paul's intention is to get out there and to share the gospel in a place that, as far as he knows, will not yet have heard the good news of Jesus, and he wants their support. You can read of it in chapter 15. He intends to come, spend time with the Romans, gather some support and resources, and be sent on his way. So when he says here, how can they call on him they've not believed? How can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear unless a preacher goes? How can a preacher 
go without being sent. He's thinking him to Spain. The Romans sending him. Why? He tells them, chapter 15, verse 20, I've made it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. It shouldn't be surprising point because especially the power and the role the significance of preaching because he's begun the letter uh, in just the same spirit and way and we've reminded ourselves of those verses almost every single week but we'll do it again for I'm not ashamed of the gospel chapter 1 verse 16 for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written The righteous shall live by faith. To trust preaching is to trust God's word, which is to trust God himself, as he has appointed this his means of salvation. So here in verses 16 to 21, as we come to land here, Paul shows from scripture how God has, is, and will make sure that the message is heard And he shows God's purposes in doing this. On the one hand, he vindicates God in his actions and incriminates Israel in their actions. That God has been faithful and that they have been faithless. See it in five simple points here in this this argument between 16 and verse 21. We'll jump around slightly. Verse 18 here. Firstly, he shows the message has been heard. Have they not heard? He asks. Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their word to the ends of the world. The message has been heard. They can't say, you never told us this, God. Instead, what did Jesus say, John chapter 5? Even though they've read his word many times, you've not heard his voice. You've read it. You've seen it. It's been there before you. You've just not perceived it. The message has been heard. But the message has been rejected. Verse 16, skip back just a little bit. Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? There's a problem. It's not that they've not heard. It's who has believed. That's why I have to skip backwards just a little bit to get the flow of the argument. It's a message that's been heard but rejected. It's been heard. It's been rejected. Thirdly, God's purpose in Israel's rejection is put there. Verse 19. Did Israel not understand? Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who aren't a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. His point is that in seeing the fruit and the flourishing of the gospel amongst people who haven't been a part of all the history and heritage and everything of of Israel, I'm going to make you jealous that you'll return to me. Now, he'll think about this in much more detail uh, next time, so we'll leave it at that for today. But this will lead to revival in Israel, and this is something that God has spoken before. It's a message that's heard, a message that's rejected, We've seen God's purpose in Israel's rejection. That's that ultimately they return to him. And then fourthly, we see Gentiles are included. Verse 20. I've been found by those who didn't seek me. Returning back to verses 30 to 32 of chapter 9. I've been found by those who didn't seek me. I've shown myself to those who didn't ask for me. It's good news that your and my disinterest may not exclude you. Because he loves you enough to intervene when not invited. I've been found by those who didn't seek me. I've shown myself to those who didn't ask for me. And then fifthly, 
we see God's continued message to rebels. Of Israel, he says, verse 21, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Disobedient and contrary. Uh, this is my old dog, Doug. Um, great, there he is. Uh, Doug was great. But the thing about Jack Russells, if you've never had one, if you do, you'll probably know this. Uh, they're nice, but dim. Uh, and I know what you're thinking. You think, ah, reflects their owner. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's quite positive, thinking I'm nice. But uh, there you go. Uh, I used to get stuck walking Doug. And what really should have been quite a nice experience, nice bonding, really, really wasn't. Um, because you couldn't trust him off the lead that just couldn't happen uh, so he was always reluctantly on it and so the whole time he's just constantly trying to run as if he's not on the lead and pulling you sort of about and in fact actually his favorite thing to do which was so embarrassing was that he'd try to go so fast and pull so hard that he'd choke himself and everyone can audibly hear this so it looks like you're just the most awful abusive owner because the dog's just and it just made the whole thing really, really frustrating uh, and annoying. And then he'd suddenly sort of dart in another direction to try to pull you away. Disobedient and contrary. Hard to keep patience with. The way the Bible actually puts it in other places is stiff-necked. Doug had a very stiff neck. I don't know how he managed to endure it. Disobedient and contrary people. Stiff-necked. Stubborn, pulling the opposite way, resisting the call and leading of God. And yet, God is gracious and patient, continuing to speak to a people who don't love him yet. And there's great hope for Israel. We'll read of it in chapter 11. There's no need to go there today, but you'll see that there's great hope for them, that God's purposes and plans aren't to an end, that God is gracious and patient and reaching out to a people who do not love him yet thank god here is as we close the real practical hope and joy of the fact that god saves people himself that no matter how stubborn and contrary and disobedient you may be no matter how disinterested you may be in his love and his grace and his mercy he is good enough to not listen to you and to come anyway to intervene when not invited that for those of us where, where we see the law and the expectations and the standards of God and the real, only actual sort of honest uh, realisation is to realise, I can't live up to this, I can't do this. That God's answer is, I've done it for you. That in Jesus, every single law and its heart has been kept for you. And that God is not asking you to desperately white-knuckle it and hold on as tight as he can and avoid sort of flying off the roller coaster at some point. He's instead asking that you receive the gift he's given. He's gifted righteousness. So that everyone who would call on the name of the Lord would be saved. Let's pray. Father God,